It's election day across the U.S. with Democrats trying to hold on to majorities in the House and Senate and Republicans looking to regain control. It's Tuesday, November 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Massachusetts voters choose their new governor, Democrat Maura Healey or Republican Jeff Deal. We're going to win and we're going to win big and strong because we've been working for it. You know, with the independence and, and uh, Republican base that I have, I think we actually have a great chance of winning tomorrow. And a preview of today's key nationwide races, the White House is urging patience because it may take a while for results to be announced. More and more ballots are being cast in early voting and also by mail. It takes time to count all legitimate ballots in a legal and orderly manner. WBUR and NPR will have live local and national results and analysis starting tonight at 8. Sunny today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Control of Congress and top governorships are on the line as voters across the nation today make their way to ballot boxes. Americans are worried about how far their paychecks can stretch in an inflation-wracked economy and also about the issue of abortion access. Underlying the tension of the day are concerns about the electoral process itself and about outcomes, concerns that were instigated by former President Donald Trump's lies about having won election two years ago. More than three dozen states and U.S. territories will choose their next governors, and PR's Laura Benchoff has details. It's a political cliche that it's hard to beat a sitting governor. But in states like Kansas, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada, incumbent Democrats are locked in tight races with their GOP opponents. In Oklahoma and Georgia, it's Republican incumbents Kevin Stitt and Brian Kemp, respectively, who face close challenges. There are eight open seats. Two of those races in Arizona and Oregon could go either way, according to the Cook Political Report. Looking across the country, Republicans currently control more than half of all governor's offices. Changing that number won't change national politics the way flipping the Senate or House will. But these state executives increasingly shape major policy decisions from abortion to education. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. New Hampshire Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan is facing a challenge from retired Army Brigadier General John Baldock, the GOP candidate, and PR's Deirdre Walsh reports. Senator Hassan stresses that New Hampshire is a purple state and will be a close race. She has touted her bipartisan record, passing bills to lower prescription drug costs, boost manufacturing jobs, and invest millions in roads, bridges, and rail projects. Hassan has distanced herself from President Biden, saying he was too slow to respond to inflation. She argues her opponent is an extreme Republican who opposes abortion rights. Baldick, for his part, has walked back some of his statements saying the 2020 election was stolen and says abortion should be decided at the state level. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. The government of conservative Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney is facing a test of its efforts to stop the arrival of migrants arriving by boat after pleas from U.N. agencies to permit entry to all of the migrants on rescue vessels. Eighty-nine have now disembarked from one of four charity rescue boats. NPR's Sylvia Poggioli has more. The government is applying selective entry, insisting it's acting humanely but firmly. But the ship's captains refuse to leave uh, Catania port, insisting the remaining migrants must be allowed to land and be allowed to apply for asylum. SOS Humanity is filing legal actions with two Italian courts appealing the government's selective methods. 
NPR's Sylvia Pojoli, Dow Futures Up 120. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Polls are now open across Massachusetts on this election day. WBOR's Walt Wuthman joins us now from outside the polling location at Florian Hall in Dorchester. Sorry it's cold, Walt. What's it like there? Morning, Rupa. Um, it's cold, but the sun is coming up uh, and people are going Uh, Into the election station now. Um, Voters across the state are choosing a new governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general today. And there are also some contentious ballot questions to be decided. It's election day, but it's also the final day of election season. The Secretary of State's office says about a million people have already voted early or by mail. Secretary of State Bill Galvin also expects turnout to be lower today than the midterms four years ago. It almost makes this election more like a midterm exam uh, than a midterm choice. Uh, mostly because voters themselves are quite involved in trying to assess the implications of the four ballot questions. The polls are open until 8 o'clock tonight. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Rupa, back to you. Thanks, Walt. WBUR and NPR will have live results and analysis beginning tonight at 8. You can also get the results on your phone or computer at WBUR.org. And join us tomorrow morning for a complete look at the midterm election results. The Justice Department's internal watchdog is investigating U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. Sources tell the Associated Press the investigation stems from Rollins's attendance at a political fundraiser back in July. She appeared at the event alongside First Lady Jill Biden. The AP reports investigators are also looking into a trip Rollins took to California that was paid for by an outside group, as well as whether she used a personal cell phone for official business. Rollins's office says it's fully cooperating with investigators. We return to fall today after the unseasonable warmth we've seen the past few days. Temperatures won't get past the 50s. The National Weather Service says Boston set a record Sunday with a high of 76. But as Maura Hoplamazian reports, all this nice weather paints a picture of climate change. Mary Stampone is New Hampshire's state climatologist. She says human-caused climate change is driving warmer temperatures and more extreme high temperatures. And for November... Daytime highs of 70 degrees Fahrenheit is considered an extreme high temperature. Stampone says the region is seeing cold seasons warm the most. The growing season is getting longer, the first freeze comes later, and that can have big effects on nature and people. We need winters. We need cold winters. Our ecosystems are adapted to these kind of extreme cold winters that we're just not having anymore. Stampone says with climate change, we can expect to have warmer Novembers going forward. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. A father and son from the central mass town of Princeton are back in the U.S. after serving time in a Japanese prison. Michael and Peter Taylor were convicted in 2019 for helping the former chairman of Nissan flee that country where he was facing charges of financial misconduct. Peter Taylor has finished his sentence. Michael Taylor is expected to be released from a U.S. prison at the end of this year. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And Innuendo, with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. The Bruins beat the St. Louis Blues 3-1 last night at the Garden. The Bees' next game is Thursday against the Calgary 
Flames. The Celtics stopped the Grizzlies 109-106 in Memphis. The Seas are back home tomorrow to face the Detroit Pistons. In your forecast, sunny today and cooler. The high will only be in the 50s. Clear overnight with a low around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and back to the 50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 708. WBUR supporters include Netflix presenting Is That Black Enough for You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game. On Netflix, November 11th. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. On this election day, one of the most closely watched races is a Pennsylvania contest for the U.S. Senate. Republican Pat Toomey is retiring. If Democrats win his seat, it could help them keep their thin majority in the U.S. Senate. NPR's Jeff Brady is watching the race from Pittsburgh and joins us now. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Rachel. So Pennsylvania, critical swing state. Donald Trump won there in 2016, then lost to Joe Biden in 2020. This one seat could tip the balance of power in the Senate. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is running against celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz. With all that background now articulated, what is the state of the race? (laughs) It's really close. Uh, Cook Political Report still calls it a toss-up. Both candidates have been campaigning up to the last minute. I was at an Oz event in Lebanon, Pennsylvania yesterday. He was at a diner. It was packed with supporters. He asked them to all go out and ask others if they're happy with how the country is going. And if people say no, he encouraged them to vote for Oz. (laughs) I I talked with the retired schoolteacher Jim Walker outside that diner. He was wearing a red Make America Great Again hat and an NRA t-shirt. The Democrats are taking us down the wrong path and I think he'll help to correct that. And are there specific issues that are important to you in this race? All of them. Uh, Lawlessness, the economy mostly, uh, his stance on abortion. Now that's in central Pennsylvania. You'll get a different response in the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, Bridget Tarnowski uh, picked up on a Fetterman campaign point there that Oz only moved to Pennsylvania at the end of 2020, about a year before he started running for Senate. I am planning to vote for Fetterman. And I think the most important thing is that he's from Pennsylvania. I think that his representation of the working class from central Pennsylvania is very important, even though I'm not from there. I'm from Philly. Tarnowski told me another reason she's voting for Fetterman is abortion access. Fetterman says he'd push to codify those rights after the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe versus Wade. We heard that voter there talking about the appeal of Fetterman's working class image. I mean, has that Has that changed? How are both candidates framing themselves in these last few days of campaigning? Definitely. Fetterman is sticking with that blue-collar guy image. He's got his tattoos and his sweatshirt still out on the campaign trail, sometimes wearing shorts. (laughs) He talks a lot about uh, defending the average person from the rich and powerful. He mentions Oz's name alongside Trump's as often as possible, uh, painting Oz as an extremist. Oz uh, has his core conservative message about improving the economy, inflation, and cracking down on crime with this kind of overall theme of if you don't like where the country is headed, vote for the party that doesn't control Congress now. So these candidates don't have a heck of a lot in common, but they do share similar views of the natural gas drilling business. How much does that matter to the average Pennsylvanian? You know, it's a big deal here because gas drilling is a big business in the state. Climate change doesn't come up much, though. Instead, discussion has centered on that controversial drilling practice called fracking, which boosts gas production. Um, Both candidates have changed their views on fracking. They've supported uh, moratoriums in the past, but now say they support the industry. 
Um, we also should touch on the open governor seat race in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. right? What can you tell us quickly? Yeah, we have two different candidates. The Democrat, Josh Shapiro, is Pennsylvania's attorney general. He's from the Philly suburbs. Uh, he's got attention for defending the election results two years ago from Trump allies. Republican Doug Mastriano is a state senator, very conservative. He was at the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, and he's embraced Trump's false claim that the former president won in 2020. Uh, Democrat Shapiro appears to have the edge in this race. NPR's Jeff Brady reporting on the Pennsylvania Senate race and other campaigns. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rachel. Sometime after today, we find out if a tradition of politics endures. Normally, though not always, the president's party loses seats in Congress in a midterm election. Republican strategist Scott Jennings told us yesterday that is why his party enters the vote counting with a perceived advantage. Well, I think the return to the fundamentals of a normal midterm, Joe Biden's approval rating is still... Uh, charitably in the mid-40s and many places in the low-40s. That usually bodes poorly for the party in power. And number two, the economy and inflation have uh, reasserted themselves as the biggest issues. Democrats are pushing against this trend, and one is Arizona Senator Mark Kelly. He's a distinctive political figure. He's a former astronaut and the husband of former Representative Gabby Giffords, famously wounded in an assassination attempt. He's a Democratic senator who went out of his way to praise his Republican predecessor, John McCain. Now he's in a tough re-election in a purple state, and while Kelly is with his party on abortion rights and issues like Medicare and Social Security, he emphasizes that at times he has criticized President Biden. I had to tell the White House when they weren't doing enough about bringing, bringing down gas prices and, you know, told them that they, they need to increase the number of leases in the Gulf of Mexico. They did some of that. Not enough. We put it in legislation. Now it's the law that the president signed. Uh, now we have to get the oil companies to step up because they've been reluctant. They've got outsized profits, you know, right now. Can I ask about the idea of voting for the person versus voting for the party? We, of course, have interviewed a lot of voters and one said very clearly uh, to me last month, I would like to think that I would vote for the person, but really I have to vote for the party because the stakes are so high in who controls Congress. Can you make a case for someone who is in Arizona who's more conservative voting for you, regardless of which party you're, you're in, even though you would be on the Democratic side? Absolutely. Uh, but let me first say I've always voted for the person, you know, my entire adult life. I think that's important. I try to set the party politics aside. I, I was in the military, 25 years in the Navy. I spent also 15 years of that at NASA. I didn't care about the party of the person sitting next to me. I mean, decisions should be about what does the individual represent? Who are they? What are they going to do? Um, I mean, I've tried to do things much differently. But really, isn't your vote for Senate Majority Leader going to be your single most important vote? My single most important vote? No, yeah. no. I think, Deciding I think who my, controls the chamber if it's close. I think my single most important votes are things like uh, leading and then voting on things like the CHIPS Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the veterans' health care that we expanded. Um, those are the most important votes we take. And think about this for a second. I mean, we did that working across the aisle, bipartisan legislation. That's the way the place is supposed to work. You know, you're talking about a contrast between me and my opponent. He says that Democrats are psychopaths and he will not work with moderate Republicans. And if he's in the United States Senate, there will be no legislation for two years. 
Arizona's Republican nominee is tech executive Blake Masters, who did use that word psychopaths about Democrats in an ad. Masters did also say he would try to shame moderate Republicans if they do not accept his views on border security. Mark Kelly insists he takes a more bipartisan approach to immigration, and he speaks of Arizona's border a little as some Republicans do. Oh, there's a lot wrong. Uh, First of all, it's a crisis. It's been going on for decades. Uh, The numbers go up, they go down, they go back up. And I've successfully got, um, you know, more resources to the border. I also have legislation to increase Border Patrol pay. Uh, when, When the president wants to do something that doesn't make any sense to me, you know, I have legislation like on Title 42. I have legislation to prevent them from ending Title 42 until they come up with a, with a plan. Oh, we should explain for people, this is the policy that allows people to be kept out of the United States because of concerns about COVID. You want to keep that in place for now? Yes, it is a public health um, thing that was put into place. Um, however, before you get rid of it, you got to have a plan on how you're going to deal with these increasing numbers. And DHS doesn't have a plan. Now, Blake Masters, your opponent, in a debate with you last month, did note that border apprehensions have gone up recently, and here's how he phrased it. Illegal aliens, when they come here, they're supposed to be caught and deported back to their home country or back to some other country that wants them. But no, Joe Biden and Mark Kelly, they laid out the welcome mat. This is the greatest country in the history of the world. If you invite everybody to come here, you'll create a crisis. Now, Senator, there's a lot in there, but just getting on the idea of inviting people to this country, is there something about President Biden's rise to power, his criticism of Donald Trump's immigration policies that did create the idea for some people that they would be welcomed in the United States under a Biden administration? You know, we've had record high numbers um, over the last year, especially. Um, But we have had numbers you know, approaching these in the past, even decades ago. They go up and down for a lot of different reasons. Um, That's why I'm going to continue to work with my Republican colleagues to get uh, Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection and especially Border Patrol the resources they need. I've also successfully, you know, got this administration to close some of the gaps in the border wall system. South of Yuma, there's been four big holes uh, in the wall. Now we have contracts to get those closed. And I'm going to continue to work on this. One other thing, did you agree with the president the other day when he warned that democracy is at risk depending on the results of this election? I didn't see the speech. And I, I'm, I don't agree with the part, that quote. And I, you know, you, this might be out of context. So I haven't seen the whole thing. He was saying that there are hundreds of Republicans on the ballot who have denied past election results and therefore could not be relied upon to abide by future election results? Well, I think it's true that there are, my opponent, you know, he says the 2020 election was stolen here in Arizona. Um, He's also now saying the 2022 election will be, or might be fraudulent. Those things are dangerous. Um, So I get the concerns. um, And, you know, that's why it's important for people to get out and vote. We have a stronger democracy when more people vote. You know, to have a former president telling people that, uh, you know, the whole thing is rigged is just not healthy for our democracy. Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on. He's facing the voters of Arizona today. We should tell you NPR reached out to Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters for an interview in recent days. We were told he wasn't available, although the invitation remains open.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, while world leaders at the UN Climate Summit in Egypt sound alarms on climate change, some activists are trying to draw attention to the many political prisoners being detained in the country. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Mass Poetry with the Evening of Inspired Leaders, November 14th. Words that inspire from Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer with host Meghna Chakrabarty, masspoetry.org. I'm Robin Young. Jeanette McCurdy's best-selling memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died, tells of her monstrous stage mom. Even when Jeanette gets a role in the hit show iCarly, she only thinks of her. Mom's going to be happy. Mom's dream finally came true. The lens that I had was my mom knows best what I wore, um, what I was or wasn't eating. Everything was what does my mom want. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clear skies today and low 50s right now. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Universal Pictures with She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the New York Times journalists whose investigation helped ignite a movement based on actual events. Only in theaters November 18th. Rated R. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com And from San Jose State University, with more than 100 graduate programs, providing creativity and talent to the Silicon Valley and beyond. More at sjsu.edu slash graduate programs. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. A leading voice of Egypt's revolt against autocracy in 2011 may die behind bars in the midst of a UN-sponsored climate summit in the Egyptian beach resort city of Sharm el-Sheikh. For more than 200 days, Ala Abzafateh, a British Egyptian citizen imprisoned over his activism, has been on hunger strike. And on Sunday, he stopped drinking water just before the start of COP27. His family says if he isn't released, he will die. We spoke to his sister, Sanat Saif, who's in Sharm el-Sheikh trying to increase pressure on Egyptian authorities to release her brother. I asked her if traveling to Egypt could mean she was putting herself in danger. Firstly, I'm desperate. I'm, I'm, I'm losing my brother, so I'm not, I'm not sure if I care anymore about my safety. But also I'm counting on the publicity because we, we have managed to make Hala's case such high profile. So I imagine they will be calculating the political price of whether to arrest me or not. But I'm hoping we can save Ale. Anyway, we're, we've been living in, in crazy oppression for so long. You're at the conference and the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is also in Egypt. And he wrote you a letter before his departure. What did he say and what do you want the British government to do? I was glad that we got a response. And so it means that it's a priority. I'm just worried it could be too late. This should have been resolved before uh, the prime minister ever setting foot in Egypt. I'm waiting to see what will happen. He's already here and we haven't heard any progress. I'm really glad that he understands the urgency. 
I hope he actually raises it firmly and the Egyptian authorities w will know the difference if the prime minister is just paying lip service or if he cares and if this is important for him. When was the last time you physically saw your brother? Last time I saw him was in August, um, 16th of August. He looked very scary to me. I, uh, he looked frail. His eyes looked sunken. I, I can't even understand how his, he's still alive from where, when I saw him. Um, he's endured so much. But um, when I wrote him a letter, I, I told him genuinely that I, I was scared when I saw him. That was a month ago. He told me, I feel better than I look. I feel stronger than I look. And I'm, uh, I have it in me to continue this fight. And I trust him. You've said a few times, I just hope it's not too late. And your brother stopped drinking water on Sunday. He's on no calories. And now he's not drinking water. How much time is there? I don't know. He's been now, it's over 24 hours with Ale stopping water. I think we're talking hours, we're talking days. I don't know. I'm, I'm really worried. And this was also one of the requests we've made to the British uh, authorities. So, okay, you're working on release, but we, we need you to get us daily proof of life. We don't have daily access to Ale as a family. Um, my mom is right now outside the prison gates trying to get any information or a letter written by him so that we know that he's alive. There's been a lot of criticism that COP27 is happening at all in a country where activists are imprisoned for years, like your brother. Do you think this should be happening in Egypt? Uh, I think it was a big mistake, of course, because host countries should have some uh, standards to host COP because the, there needs to be civic space for, for this conference to function even because... You know, the, the thing about these conferences is that you have the activists outside pressuring the politicians, and so the politicians fear the heat. Uh, right now in this space, for instance, the activists are so isolated from the officials. And I hope the UN understands, realizes that it was a mistake, because so far they're acting as if, like, this is a conference happening in Sweden. They're acting oblivious. But I'm really, really relieved and uh, heartwarmed by the amount of solidarity we've seen. Many are now raising the human rights situation, not government so far, publicly, but a lot of the activists coming from Global South, Global North have used this space to address the human rights situation and to kind of be our voice on our behalf because Egyptians can't easily access this space. I, I had to do a lot of roundabouts to get my accreditation. You said that you're hoping you can save Annette, that you're desperate to save your brother. And of course, I understand that. And Annette is not alone. He's not the only one who is in this situation. Last week, another Egyptian political prisoner named Ala As-Salami died in detention, also on hunger strike. Can you just talk about that larger context of the numbers of people that are in the same situation as your brother? The estimation is, by human rights groups, is 60,000 political prisoners. It's definitely a lot. I don't even think that the Egyptian authorities themselves, if they decided to make a good estimate, like give a number of the number of political prisoners they have, they would be able to. It's become so hectic on the ground. It's, uh, it's really, when we say it's become a police state, we're not exaggerating. But we have seen, because of the conference, a shift in tone, not in uh, actions, in tone. So that's why we urge everybody to keep pressing because a shift in tone means that 
the authorities, the Egyptian regime realizes it has to do some facelifting, <laughs> some aesthetic improvements for the world to kind of accept it. So you think the pressure might be working? Yes, the pressure is working. The real challenge is that it takes a lot to, to convince Western governments to actually press and uh, the silence really needs to be broken. The silence has now been broken by the international community, by, by activists, by, by media, but it has not been broken by politicians and it needs to be broken. Sana safe speaking to us from Egypt where she's advocating for her brother, Ala Abdel Fattah imprisoned in Egypt on hunger strike and he's now given up water. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Just after I spoke with Sana Saif, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak did meet with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Hassisi. Sunak's office says he expressed deep concern about Ala Abdel Fattah's case. NPR reached out to the Egyptian embassy and UN organizers of the summit about Abdel Fattah's case and the general concern over the Egyptian government's human rights record. We have not heard back. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Listen to WBOR for everything you need to know as you head to the polls today. Live results and analysis start tonight at 8. Coming up on Morning Edition, the story of three federal lawsuits filed in three states that describe a culture of sexual abuse, drugs, and pornography in competitive cheerleading. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Voters across the U.S. will be heading to the polls today. Republicans are hoping to regain control of the House and possibly the Senate in the congressional midterms by focusing on the economy and crime. Several Senate races are key to Democrats and the GOP. They include ones in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. NPR's Martin Costi has more. Congressman Matt Cartwright in Pennsylvania's 8th District personifies the Democratic strategy on crime. On a recent stop in Wilkes-Barre, he announced federal grants to pay for more local cops, praising police while still acknowledging the calls for reform. I went on no fewer than four George Floyd protest marches here in northeastern Pennsylvania. On all four of them, the local police assisted the marchers. On three of them, they provided the refreshments. But a barrage of Republican campaign ads has linked moderate Democrats to rising violent crime in big cities. And that may be tightening races for previously secure incumbents, such as New York's Governor Kathy Hochul and Washington State's U.S. Senator Patty Murray. Martin Costi, NPR News. 34 counties in Florida are under a state of emergency because of Nicole. The subtropical storm is expected to gain hurricane strength before it approaches the state's Atlantic coastline by tomorrow night. Nicole's top sustained winds are 50 miles per hour. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
polls across Massachusetts are now open on this election day. Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal are making their final pitches to voters in their bids to become the next governor of Massachusetts. WBUR's Anthony Brooks caught up with Healey in Boston yesterday and has this report. Healy returned to East Boston, where she launched her bid for governor last January. She said after more than 10 months of campaigning, she was confident that she'd win today and is ready to take on a series of challenges facing Massachusetts residents. We'll address issues of affordability right now, confronting so many families, that we'll work on housing, we'll work on transportation, we'll work on education and mental health. So much work to do. Healy is heavily favored to defeat Republican Jeff Deal and become the state's first elected female and openly gay governor. Deal also campaigned yesterday in Boston and predicted an upset victory, calling this a good day for Republicans across the country. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Check out WBUR.org slash voter guide for answers to any last-minute questions you may have before casting your ballot. Our coverage of the local and national election results begins tonight at 8 here on air. You can also get the results at WBUR.org. Police are investigating anti-Semitic vandalism at a house in Stowe. Officials say over the weekend a car had its tires slashed and an anti-Semitic slur was carved onto its side. The home was also burned in multiple places. Town officials are condemning the attack and there will be a vigil on the town common this evening. Cambridge is on the verge of banning right turns at red lights. The city council passed the measure last night. Supporters say it'll make roads safer for pedestrians. The ban must still be finalized by the mayor. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics won their third straight game last night. They beat the Grizzlies 109-106 in Memphis. The Seas will host the Detroit Pistons tomorrow. The Bruins also won last night. They beat the St. Louis Blues 3-1 at the Garden. The Bees' next game is Thursday. Sunny and low 50s today with some gusty winds. Clear and around freezing tonight. Tomorrow, sunny again and low 50s again. It warms up a bit on Thursday. It'll be sunny and in the low 60s. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Today is the last day to make your voice heard with your vote in this year's midterms. But even though it's election night, it might not be results night. Yeah, because mail-in voting gets more popular each election cycle. It takes time to go through all those mail-in ballots. And states with widespread mail voting include Pennsylvania, where just one election could decide the Senate and where the Republican Party is already pushing to disqualify some ballots. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang joins us now from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Good morning, Rachel. So what is happening there that will likely slow down vote counting today? 
Well, I'm watching two big factors that help determine whether state election officials can report results on election night. One, how many people vote by mail? And two, how much time before election day do officials have to process the mailed ballots to get them ready for counting? And in Pennsylvania, more than 1.4 million mail-in ballots have been requested for this year's general elections. And Pennsylvania election officials have zero time before election day to start processing mail-in ballots. So this puts election officials here at a major disadvantage in terms of turnaround times, especially when you compare them to officials in states like Florida, where both processing and counting ballots starts before election day. So I don't get it. Why can't Pennsylvania election officials start counting mail-in ballots earlier? They can't do it because of Pennsylvania state law that says processing cannot start until 7 a.m. local time on Election Day. And by the way, there's the same restriction in Wisconsin, another swing state. You know, a lot of people don't know about or don't pay attention to this processing work. It's often called pre-canvassing. It mm -hmm. can include, you know, checking voter signatures on the return envelope for the ballot, opening the envelopes, taking the ballots out of the envelopes, flattening the ballots, and then stacking the ballots so they're ready for scanning. It can sound very mundane, very tedious, but these are all critical steps in ensuring an accurate vote count. And, mm -hmm. you know, the bipartisan Policy Center has recommended setting aside at least seven days before Election Day for this pre canvassing work. Wow. Trump supporters made false claims about the validity of mail-in votes in the 2020 election. In light of that, was there any effort to change the law to try to give more time for processing these ballots and give less grist to those who are spreading disinformation? Well, in Pennsylvania, there were multiple efforts, but before the midterm elections, Pennsylvania's legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, could not agree with the governor, who's a Democrat, on a legislative package that would include pre-canvassing changes. And Republican state lawmakers here in Pennsylvania did not advance bills that were more tightly focused on pre-canvassing. But, you know, I, I should note there is a swing state with similar challenges that recently did make some changes to pre-canvassing. There's a law that passed last month in Michigan that allows communities there with at least 10,000 residents to start pre-canvassing two days before Election Day. But it came too late for some local election officials who had already finalized their plans for the midterm. So really, who knows how long it will take to get results. Meanwhile, Republicans are already saying that some mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania should be thrown out. Explain what's going on. Well, there are thousands of mail ballots that arrived on time in Pennsylvania, but may end up getting rejected from final vote counts. The reason is because the envelopes they're in, they don't have dates handwritten by voters or they have incorrect dates. And the thing is, these handwritten dates are required by Pennsylvania state law, but there is a federal lawsuit over whether that date is enough to disqualify a person's vote. So we'll have to see what happens. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reporting from Philadelphia on this election day. Thanks, Hansi. You're welcome, Rachel. Federal lawsuits filed in three states give a grim portrait of competitive cheerleading. Six suits describe a culture of drugs and pornography and accuse some cheerleading institutions of failing to protect minors from sexual abuse. This story contains explicit details and language, so if you need to go away, totally fine. We'll still be here in four minutes. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reports. Cheerleading has exploded from the sidelines of games to teams that compete fiercely against each other. There are some 4 million competitive cheerleaders nationwide, from young kids to college students. In this video, cheerleaders from Rockstar Gym in Greenville, South Carolina, flip, twist, and toss each other high in the air. The gym won a world title in 2019. 
But in September, the facility suddenly closed after a lawsuit accused the owner of sexually abusing cheerleaders, including minors. Bakari Sellers is one of the attorneys who filed the suit. I have probably seen more masturbation videos and naked pictures than you ever want to imagine. Rockstar's owner killed himself a week before the lawsuit was filed. The suit says he'd learned he was under federal investigation by the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, which handles child pornography. DHS will not comment. Since that suit, a dozen cheerleaders from Rockstar allege they were plied with drugs and alcohol and sexually abused. The allegations spanned a decade. Again, attorney Bakari Sellers. What they're going through is unimaginable. In another case in Tennessee, two boys say a coach at Premier Athletics Knoxville West sent pornographic photos and sexually abused them. Lawyers for the gym say it's been inaccurately implicated and the coach was fired. In North Carolina, a teenager accuses two coaches at the Extreme Cheer All-Stars Gym in Raleigh of sexual abuse and giving him cocaine. That gym's owner says she's disheartened by the allegations. In total, 15 victims have come forward in these lawsuits to accuse 13 coaches and the late rock star owner. NPR tried to contact the 10 coaches named in the suits. Two denied the allegations and the others couldn't be reached or didn't respond. It's important to note that no criminal charges have been filed against the defendants in these lawsuits. Attorney Alexandra Benevento, who works with Seller, says they've received calls from more than 100 people across the country who also allege abuse at these gyms and others. But she says coaches and gyms aren't the only ones to blame for the abuse of minors. They were also harmed by these companies that not only didn't do anything about it, but decided that they were going to protect themselves over protecting these children. The lawsuits say one of those companies is Varsity. That's cheerleading's dominant commercial force. Lawyers describe the operation like this. Gyms pay dues to be affiliated with Varsity. And families at Varsity-affiliated gyms have to pay cheerleading's governing body, the U.S. All-Star Federation. The Federation handles misconduct complaints. But the suit says Varsity controls the Federation, and the Federation has failed to address multiple abuse reports from parents. Attorney Jessica Fickling, who's also on the legal team, says Varsity has created a structure to report abuse, but it doesn't keep kids safe. It is a structure put in place to give an impression of safety. It's just that it's not working that way. A varsity spokesperson rejects these accusations. He says the company does not control the U.S. All-Star Federation and would expect it to investigate abuse allegations. The Federation did not respond. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in South Carolina. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. It's NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, Maura Healy and Jeff Deal make late campaign stops in Boston. Both say they're confident that Massachusetts voters will choose them as the new governor. And one Massachusetts writer's lesson on the power of saying three simple words, I don't know. In your forecast, sunny today but cold relative to the last few days. It'll only be in the low 50s and it'll be windy. Clear and low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and low 50s again. Sunny and low 60s on Thursday. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling our biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. 
America's climate leadership is center stage at COP27. How can investors and companies go further, faster? Ceres has solutions. More at CERES.org slash WBUR. Now, in business news, a Boston City Councilor is calling on Walgreens to delay the scheduled closure of three stores. The pharmacy chain plans to close locations at Mattapan, Roxbury, and Hyde Park this week. Councilor Brian Worrell wants the company to keep the stores open for at least another month. We're going back into uh, flu season And if Walgreens is no longer there providing the COVID vaccine or the flu shots, where is our community going to go to to be able to access, you know, the vaccination or even flu shots? The company blames buying habits and the local market for the closures. About 55 people from Twitter's Boston office are being let go as part of the company's mass layoffs. The Boston Globe reports those layoffs would go into effect in January. The cuts come just one week after Elon Musk became the new owner of the social network. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters. A new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now it's all up to Massachusetts voters in choosing the next governor. After months of campaigning, the two leading candidates, Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal, were both in Boston yesterday making their closing arguments. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. Healey returned to East Boston, where she launched her campaign for governor last January on a cold, wet, blustery day. Yesterday, by contrast, felt like spring. And after almost a year of campaigning, Healey was confident about today's outcome. We're going to win, and we're going to win big and strong because we've been working for it. And we have had grassroots and volunteers who have been getting after it week after week, month after month. Healy and her running mate Kim Driscoll stopped into the Meridian Street Market to make a couple of subs in front of a crush of reporters. Healy, the Democrat, is heavily favored to defeat Republican Jeff Deal and become the state's first elected female and openly gay governor. If they prevail, Healy and Driscoll will be the country's first all-female team to win a fact that both took note of. Representation matters, seeing is believing. I've certainly felt the enthusiasm of a lot of little girls out there and folks generally who who are seeing a different look. What do you think about that? Yeah, somebody's got to be first. I'm glad it might be us. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Deal was also in Boston yesterday, working the post-shift crowd at the Erie Pub in Dorchester. Deal is very much the underdog in this race, a conservative Republican endorsed by former President Trump, who remains deeply unpopular in blue Massachusetts. But Deal is holding on to hope and says the state's relatively low early voting numbers suggest Democrats are not energized. You know, you've got uh, Joe Biden and the economy in a tough shape right now. And in some ways that really plays to our favor, a low visibility race with a motivated um, electorate, you know, with the independents and and, uh, Republican base that I have, I think we actually have a great chance of winning tomorrow. 
Deal says he can repeat the magic of Republican Scott Brown, who stunned the nation in 2010 when he came from behind and won a special U.S. Senate election to succeed the late Ted Kennedy. Brown has endorsed Deal. Deal also argues there are lots of moderate voters who like the idea of a Republican governor serving as a check on a democratically controlled legislature. That's why Paul Elwell, a union sheet metal worker from Dorchester, says he's voting for Deal. I like his politics, but I, I more like the idea of having both parties in power. I don't like having one party having all the power in the state. Both Deal and Healy will be making their final pitches to voters throughout the day. Polls will be open across the state until 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Join WBUR and NPR for live election results and analysis tonight beginning at 8. You can also keep tabs on the latest at WBUR.org on your phone or laptop. Then join us tomorrow on Morning Edition for a complete breakdown of the results. I don't know. Those three little words are hard for some of us to say. A local author and creative writing instructor explored why in a book about the power of admitting to our own ignorance. In the process, Lee Hager Cohen learned that the more forthright we are about what we don't know, the easier things become. As we mark the 10th anniversary of WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page, here's Lee Hager Cohen's essay, first published a decade ago. On the first day of class, I'm expected to discuss academic integrity with my college writing students. I used to do this in dutifully unimaginative fashion, directing students to the institutional handbook with its definitions of plagiarism, cheating, and collusion. The students would manage to look bored, resentful, and anxious all at once. Talk about starting the semester on a high note. Then I began to wonder why academic dishonesty occurs in the first place. Is the price of honesty too high? What if we could eliminate the perceived cost, at least within the small community of our own classroom? What possibilities might arise if we addressed what lay at the heart of the matter? So now, instead of going over the written policy, I tell them about my friend Mary, You know when you're with someone you want to impress, I ask? Maybe you're feeling kind of dumb, like you're worried you'll be found out, and the person mentions a book or a writer in this tone like, naturally, you know what I'm talking about. And even though you have no clue, you do that thing where you squint and give this thoughtful little nod. By now, the students are grinning. You know what my friend Mary does in that situation? She says... I don't know that book. I've never heard of that person. Sometimes one or two students will laugh out loud. A while back, I continue, I made up my mind to be brave like Mary. Ask me how I've done. Their eyebrows go up. Not that great, I confess. It's ridiculous. Sometimes I still catch myself faking it. I ask them why they think this is. And so we talk about fear, 
my fear, theirs, all of ours. Fear that revealing our ignorance will undermine our status, block our advancement, maybe even get us kicked out of the group. Desperate to belong, we pretend to have knowledge we lack, which of course creates more distance, insecurity, and loneliness. If only we felt free to say, I don't know. If our culture placed less value on judging and gatekeeping and instead honored vulnerability. After all, the condition of being human involves an awful lot of not knowing. The more we're able to acknowledge this, the more unabashedly we may inhabit our own skins. Only then might we begin to see one another more truly and enter into real community. Leah Hager-Cohen is an author and professor of creative writing at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester. She's also a contributor to WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. Read her essay and thousands more at WBUR.org. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what they've got going for us today. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Election Day. Happy Election Day, Rupa. What a momentous day mm-hmm. today. I, I am sorry. I'm so distracted. I never do this on air, but I admit there are still moments when I squint and nod. Like <laughs> I know what a person's saying when they don't. I feel so called out. I'm going to have to. I know. I really enjoyed listening to that because yeah. it was a it was a reality. It was, and I'm going to have to think about that. So um, on Election Day, since we do deep conversations, we tend to stay away from the election because we don't want to sway anybody during the day. We want everybody to get out and go to the polls. Tomorrow we'll bring some election post-election analysis. But today, one of the three conversations that we're going to have is we're going to take a look at what's happening with anti-Semitic hate Mm -hmm. and anti-Semitic hate incidents, Uh, the most recent one in Stowe. You know, slurs scrawled into a car, burn marks around a house. It's scary. Mm. It's happening a lot. Mm. And we'll actually have educators from Hebrew, um, a a day school and a Hebrew university, talking about how you do formation and train young people in this kind of environment and Mm. what the fears are and what they need from their neighbors. Okay, that's one, two, and three? Uh, Two and three, we will look at what's happening in Worcester around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And we have a musician who has invented a new instrument. All right. So cool. (laughs) Sounds great. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. It's 7.54. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. The 2022 midterms are here. Democracy's on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us later today for a live Election Day special 
As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Live coverage and complete results begins tonight at 8 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is a big day for candidates, of course, and also for pollsters who will be watching to see if their predictions panned out. Because in this age of caller ID and do not disturb mode, the job of a pollster is getting harder every year. Jeff Guo and Nick Fountain from our Planet Money podcast wanted to find out just how hard is it to poll people. They asked our polling partners at Marist College to let them give it a try. Marist pollster Daniela Charter taught us, above all, you need to charm the person on the other end of the phone. Smile while you dial. Smile while you dial. Because if you smile... Sound upbeat, you sound good, and you sound like someone that the respondent's going to want to talk to. But when we actually started dialing... Hi there. My name is Nick Fountain. I'm calling from Marist College. We discovered this was a really tough job. Oh, I got hung up on... I did not smile. I did not smile. (laughs) Non-responsiveness is a huge problem for pollsters. And it comes in a variety of flavors. There's the soft refusal. They told me to have a blessed day. I feel... I feel blessed. The hard refusal. Answering machines. Oh, thank you. Is is this a real person? (laughs) There's a voicemail. (laughs) So many voicemails. Have you ever seen someone strike out 70 times in a row? That's actually pretty common these days. Just to get one person's opinion, pollsters have to dial 50, maybe 100 numbers. Barbara Carvalho, the director of the Marist Poll, says it's especially tough to reach certain demographic groups, like rural voters or younger voters. So if we're just dialing phone numbers, um, we're really going to miss a lot of people. And if you're missing large swaths of the population, that makes your polls a lot less accurate. Pollsters have been looking at different solutions to these problems. Carvalho and Marist, they're surveying by text message. And also, they weight their polls to account for the people who are harder to reach. So instead of counting as one interview, they might count as 1.2 interviews so that they make up for the people that we didn't talk to. There might be a third solution, too. It uses an idea that economists love called the wisdom of crowds. Researchers told us if you want to predict an election, don't ask people, who are you going to vote for? Ask them, who are your friends voting for? Or who do you think is going to win the election? And the idea is by asking people to share info from their social networks, talking to one person becomes like talking to a dozen. So, Barbara, we have a question for you. Uh Uh-oh. Would you be willing to let us test one of these methods in one of your polls? Oh, sure. Really? Marist added our wisdom of crowds questions to some recent polls, and compared to the traditional who you're going to vote for question, the new results seem to heavily favor Republican candidates. And once all the votes are counted, we'll have a better sense of which questions can better predict elections. Jeff Guo, Nick Fountain, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair. 
Rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz this Friday through Sunday. Appraisals open to the public on Sunday. BostonBookFair.com. H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in medical, regulatory, and other groups at VRTX.com. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Control of the U.S. Senate and House is at stake today as voters head to the polls. In Massachusetts, we'll decide on a new governor, Maura Healey or Jeff Deal. It's Tuesday, November 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in a case that could make it easier for Native American children to be adopted by non-Native families. It's heartbreaking that there are laws out here that say it is better for her to live in any tribal home before she is allowed to stay in our home. Also this hour, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes testifies about his role in planning the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And the Philippines has been rocked by news that a high-ranking government official has been charged with the murder of a high-profile radio host. Low 50s today, sunny and windy. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Voting in this year's midterm election comes to an end when polls close this evening, and then the waiting begins to see which party will control Congress next year. NPR's Giles Snyder reports. The final appeals to voters have been made, and now polls are open on this final day of voting in the midterm elections. President Biden says Democrats will surprise, but Republicans need to pick up just five seats to win control of the House. Experts say the GOP has a strong chance to win the House majority. The Senate, however, is more in play. And in any case, experts warn control of Congress may not be clear on election night. NPR's Giles Snyder. New funding for affordable housing is on the ballot in dozens of places across the country. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports the measures come as a historic housing shortage has pushed rents to record highs. The spending measures would go to build, renovate, or subsidize affordable housing. Some would also promote low-income home ownership and help those without housing. Tenants' rights activist Tara Ragavir of People's Action says politicians talk more about gas prices, but rent is a far bigger chunk of people's budgets. There is not a county in the country where a worker earning minimum wage and working full-time can afford a two-bedroom apartment, and that's been true now for years. Opponents of some housing ballot measures don't dispute the problem, but say with inflation so high, it's a bad time to ask for any tax hike. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. Campaigning in Ohio last night, former President Donald Trump signaled a big announcement was forthcoming next week. He didn't say it would be a third presidential campaign, but supporters are hoping to have another Trump run to throw their energy into. Trump was in Vandalia, Ohio, late yesterday for GOP Senate candidate J.D. Vance. 
The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations is in Ukraine today talking about global food insecurity and urging Russia to extend a U.N. deal to allow Ukraine to export grain. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has details. The first stop was a grain processing facility where Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says she heard from farmers desperate for the Black Sea Grain Initiative to be extended. We have heard that Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. And I'm here seeing Ukraine as the breadbasket of the world, seeing wheat uh, being delivered, being processed, being produced uh, into flour. During her trip, she's also meeting with Ukrainian officials and humanitarian organizations to hear about their needs. And she's speaking with experts trying to document and preserve evidence of Russian atrocities for possible future trials. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Dow futures are up around 75 points. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Polls are open statewide for the midterm election. The Secretary of State is expecting turnout to be down somewhat from 2018. WBUR's Walter Wuthman joins us from Dorchester. How is turnout looking there, Walt? Morning, Rupa. Yeah, a lot of people actually are coming through right now to vote before work. Um, Some of the tightest races are expected to be the ballot questions, like whether to impose an additional tax on people who earn more than a million dollars. And as a reminder, a yes vote on question one would amend the state constitution to allow the surtax. A no vote rejects the idea. I just spoke to Seamus Buckley of Dorchester, who says he comes from a union family and supports question one. Question one is something I definitely, uh, you know, the millionaire's tax, something I've heard about a lot growing up. So I definitely want to see that get passed. Voters are also choosing a new governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general today. The polls are open until 8 o'clock tonight. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Back to you, Rupa. Thanks, Walt. If you need a quick refresher on those ballot questions before you vote, check out wbur.org slash voter guide. Join us tonight at 8 for live results and analysis of local and national races. You can also follow our coverage at wbur.org. The Office of U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, says it's fully cooperating with an internal Justice Department investigation. Sources tell the Associated Press investigators are looking into Rollins's attendance of a political fundraiser back in July. She appeared at the event alongside First Lady Jill Biden. The AP reports investigators are also looking into a trip Rollins took to California that was paid for by an outside group, as well as whether she used a personal cell phone for official business. Supply chain problems have forced eight Massachusetts cities and towns to stop adding fluoride to their tap water. Shortages of the additive have been affecting water systems across the country. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports this has impacted roughly a quarter million people statewide this year. Fall River, Natick, and Shrewsbury are among the communities that have run out of fluoride. Experts say short-term disruptions are not a crisis, but long-term pauses can be a concern. John Fisher is a dentist in Salem and past president of the Massachusetts Dental Society. He says he worries most about children. After a year, you'll start to see breakdown of the enamel such that you know, if you didn't know that the fluoride had been taken out, you would start wondering why, what the problem is. Experts say people in areas without water fluoridation can get oral supplements and topical treatments if needed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. 
Six more communities in southeast Massachusetts are committing to helping the state achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Governor Baker's office says the new group of green communities includes Mansfield, Bourne, and East Bridgewater. They'll help meet the goal by reducing their own energy consumption by 20 percent. Of all state residents, 87 percent now live in green communities. It's 807. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. With the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView smart motorization system. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. And Independent Education Group, guiding families seeking private and therapeutic school admissions and student academic advising. More at independenteducationgroup.com. The Bruins beat the St. Louis Blues 3-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees have won eight of their last ten games. Their next game is Thursday. The Celtics won last night, topping the Grizzlies 109-106 in Memphis. The Seas will be home tomorrow to play the Detroit Pistons. Sunny today and cooler. The high will only be in the 50s. Clear overnight with a low around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and back to the 50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Paramount Network. Yellowstone returns with its season five premiere, showcasing that power has a price. Starring Kevin Costner, Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Paramount Network. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. It is Election Day, the last chance to make your voice heard through your vote. Results might be slow coming, though, because of the number of mail-in ballots this year. That lag time before getting conclusive winners gives disinformation a chance to spread. There's already been a lot of it this campaign season from both foreign and domestic sources. Yesterday, the founder of a Russian private military organization known as the Wagner Group said that he has interfered in this year's midterms and some in the past, and he said he would commit to interfering in future U.S. elections. For more, we turn to Nina Jankowitz. She was the executive director of the Biden administration's short-lived disinformation governance board and is now with the Center for Information Resilience. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So this is a Russian billionaire with close ties to Vladimir Putin saying he is trying to mess with the U.S. election. What do you make of the timing of his admission? Well, I think the timing of this admission is not a mistake. It is meant to inspire distrust in the election process as millions of Americans are heading to the polls. And it in itself is an influence operation, probably uh, meant to make up for the fact that Russia's troll farm operations this year, the ones that have been uncovered so far, have not seen a lot of engagement on social media. This is a last ditch effort. So beyond foreign interference, which, as you say, in and of itself is dangerous, there's also the preponderance of false claims by supporters of former President Donald Trump, political operatives and certain campaigns. As someone who studies disinformation and its effect on societies, how dangerous is this? Well, you know, I think we shouldn't see Russian disinformation as the biggest informational threat to the United States right now. Russia's playbook has always been to weaponize pre-existing fissures in our society, and we have plenty of those. 60% of Americans have an election denier on the ballot today. And the GOP, in embracing these tactics of disinformation, is basically doing Russia's work for them, China's work for them, Iran's work for them. These fissures, again, are the ones that our adversaries are seizing onto and amplifying uh, as we go to the polls today. What's the short and long-term impact of disinformation campaigns on 
on a nation's psyche? Well, Rachel, I've spent a lot of time in nations like Ukraine, the Republic of Georgia, places where election interference was the norm, uh, not, you know, an an outlier. And these are things that have a very long-term impact. It's not just one election, you know, people outgrow them. They really stay in people's voting behaviors for a long time. And when people are distrusting the election process, that's something that reaches beyond one election system when they're casting their ballot. Um, it, It means that they're going to be worrying about the sanctity of their vote for essentially generations to come. Um, And so I think we all need to think about, you know, when we're uh, peddling these these lies, when we're engaging with these disinformation campaigns online, the effect that that has for our democracy downstream. It's not about who wins or loses today. It's about the, the health of our democratic institutions for years to come. Is there evidence in in other countries, Nina, that the this the spread of disinformation reduces turnout? Yeah, absolutely. So we haven't seen that effect in the United States so far, but I think we've seen that effect in uh, in the way that people are engaging in, in countries abroad. Um, when there is distrust in the system, people are less likely to believe that their vote matters, that their mm-hmm. voice matters. And uh, we need people's engagement. They're doing their civic duty in order for democracy to work. Um, so absolutely, there's a, a, you know an argument that disinformation is degrading democracy. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts, really practical help for people out there. What are three things that voters in the U.S. can keep in mind to decipher between fact and fiction as election results come in this week and beyond? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing, as you mentioned at the outset, is that particularly in closely contested races, these results may take some time to become clear. So during this time, it's best to get your information directly from the source, your local election administrator. Uh, On social media, remember that the most engaging content online is the most enraging content. And if you feel yourself getting emotional, it's a good idea to be skeptical of the information that you're encountering. And then finally, just remember that our voting infrastructure is secure. We've seen no evidence of cyber interference from any country. So you can, uh, you can, my categories... Uh, you can be sure that your your vote is going to be counted. Nina Jankowitz with the Center for Information Resilience, a disinformation expert. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Italy's new right-wing government is taking a harder line on the NGOs that rescue migrants in the Mediterranean Sea. Migrants from Africa and Asia who are trying to get to Europe. Italy is blocking men from leaving the ships, and that has prompted at least one standoff at a Sicilian port. We're joined now by NPR's Silvia Pajoli in Rome. She has been following all this. Good morning, Silvia. Good morning, Rachel. What can you tell us about the situation at the ports right now? Well, the worst is Catania in Sicily, where the rescue ship Humanity One, which flies a German flag, was finally allowed to dock over the weekend. Of the original 179 migrants rescued, 35 all males remain on board. They're from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Egypt. The head of operations of the charity SOS Humanity, Till Rumenhall, is on board and describes the situation. We see um, frustration. We see them getting more and more depressed, people having problems to eat properly because they don't understand the situation. They have so much uncertainty about their future. They are afraid of being pushed back into international waters by Italian authorities. And that's what the Italian government is threatening. How many ships are trying to dock now with how many migrants? 
Another NGO ship, the Norwegian-flagged Geo Barents, was allowed to disembark some 500 migrants, leaving around 250 on board. The government is applying selective entry, insisting it's acting humanely but firmly. But the ship's captains refused to leave uh, Catania port, insisting the remaining migrants must be allowed to land and be allowed to apply for asylum. SOS Humanity is filing legal actions with two Italian courts appealing the government's selective methods. So explain, Sylvia, you said that um, dozens of men are being kept on, on one of these ships, but lots of people have been let go. What are the criteria to determine who gets to get off the boat and who has to stay? Italy is allowing women and children and ill people to disembark. A team of doctors is sent on board to determine who's ill. Now, there's a third ship, a German-flagged Mission Lifeline, with 89 migrants on board. It was allowed to dock at Reggio Calabria on the toe of the Italian boot. And though all 89 migrants were allowed to leave the ship, the Italian authorities say that migrant rescue took place in a section of the sea that's under Italian jurisdiction, as determined by some international convention, while the other two ships rescued migrants in waters not under Italian jurisdiction. Is this a different position for the Italian government when it comes to migration? Well, it's uh, the new Italian government is just installed two weeks ago. It's a far-right coalition, and it wants to send a message to irregular migrants. It claims uh, migrants should seek asylum in the countries under whose flags the rescue ships sail. In this case, it would be Norway and Germany. Uh, the government of Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni has accused the charity rescue ships of acting as a de facto taxi service for the many migrants from Africa and Asia trying to reach Europe, and therefore allegedly encouraging human trafficking. Although the UN has said that NGO rescues account for only 15% of migrants who arrive in Italy. But the Deputy Justice Minister says Italy will no longer be migrants' punching bag. And here's what Lucio Malan, an MP from Meloni's Brothers of Italy party, said Monday. He said Ukraine migrants are women and children. African migrants are young males who shouldn't abandon their women and children. And then they staged these organized shipwrecks, he said, as if they were victims of the Titanic. Now, the government has threatened the boats with $50,000 fines if they don't leave the port of Catania. But the UN agencies for migration and refugees, as well as European Union officials, have called on Italy to allow all the migrants to be disembarked without delay. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli in Rome. Thanks, Sylvia. Thank you. Investigators in the Philippines allege a criminal organization carried out the murder of a popular radio host, and they say the national chief of prisons ordered the killing. NPR's Julie McCarthy reports. In revealing their case Monday, investigators said that correction chief Gerald Buntog, now out of the job, had the means and motive to kill the radio commentator known popularly as Percy Lapid, who dubbed his program targeting graft and corruption Lapid Fire. Government flowcharts show Bontag atop a command structure that relayed orders down to gang leaders inside the country's most notorious penitentiary. From there, investigator Eugene Javier says they orchestrated the killing of Percy Lapid on October 3rd. He was driving his black Toyota Innova from his house to the studio when two persons riding a motorcycle in tandem situated themselves beside his car and fired three bullets, causing his instantaneous death. Investigators insinuated that Lapid's frequent exposés about the prison's director general, including his alleged lavish spending, was motive enough to want the talk show host dead. 
The plot took a macabre twist when the alleged gunman who killed Lapid confessed and fingered a middleman who he said had arranged the hit from inside prison. That middleman was found dead in his cell. A second autopsy found that he had been suffocated to death with a plastic bag, held down, investigator Javier said, by his own gang members. One usually seeks refuge and protection from his own gang members. The fact that they killed one of their own indicates that there were instructions from the top and the gang simply had no choice but to execute. Investigators call their efforts a war against impunity and recommend charging Bontag and a deputy with murder in the deaths of both Lapid and the middleman. Bontag insists he's the fall guy in a case that has begun to peel back the rot in the Philippine penal system. The Justice Secretary called on him to surrender. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Up next, the Supreme Court takes up the case of a Texas couple challenging laws that make it difficult for non-Native families to adopt Native children. And in 20 minutes, why Democrats are depending on Black voters to win seats in Wisconsin's state legislature. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. After a year of catastrophic weather events, rich and poor nations have gathered in Egypt for the COP27 climate conference. The picture is grim, but some climate scientists say they're encouraged by how much progress the world has made, balancing hope and alarm in a warming world. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clear skies, low 50s, and windy today. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Caring Transitions, whose online estate sale auction solutions, CT Bids, connects family heirlooms with new owners while guiding seniors and their loved ones through the process at ctbids.com. And from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Supreme Court hears arguments tomorrow about adoptions of Native American children. Texas and several parents want the court to overturn a federal law, a rule that makes it harder to separate kids from their extended families or tribes. Here's NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. This is a case that more than usual is steeped in American history. It's also a case that more than usual will resonate with the justices, seven of whom are parents, including two who have adopted children. 
1978, Congress held extensive hearings and found that public and private agencies over time had taken hundreds of thousands of Indian children from their homes, sometimes by force, and placed them in institutions or families with no ties to their tribes. Chuck Hoskin, Jr. is the current chief of the Cherokee Nation. About a third of Native children were adopted away through child welfare agency actions. And that group, about 85 percent, were adopted outside of tribal families. The tribes saw these actions as a threat to their very existence. And so did Congress. In 1978, it passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, known by the acronym ICWA. The law established minimum federal standards for removing Native children from their families, required state courts to notify tribes when an Indian child is removed from his or her home, and required that in foster and adoption placements, first preference be given to a member of the child's extended tribal family, then other members of the tribe, and if neither of those is available, a home with a different tribal family. Now, however, the state of Texas and several families who are adopting Indian children are challenging the law in court. They contend it amounts to an unconstitutional racial preference and that the federal law impermissibly intrudes on state law. Jennifer and Chad Brackeen are among the prospective adoptive parents who are challenging the law. The couple, with two biological children of their own, fostered a baby born to a Navajo mother and a Cherokee father in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And when the mother's parental rights were terminated by the state, the Brackeens adopted the boy. When the same biological mother had another child, a girl, the Brackeens moved to get her transferred from another foster home to theirs. And now they're seeking to adopt her, too, over the objections of the tribe and the child's great-aunt. We feel like her closest living relative is her brother. That's why we push to try to get her place with us. It's heartbreaking to us that there are laws out here that say it is better for her to live in a tribal home, any tribal home, before she is allowed to stay in our home with her brother. Representing the Brackeens in the Supreme Court, lawyer Matthew McGill will tell the justices that ICWA's provisions amount to an unconstitutional racial classification. It categorizes children based on whether the children are Indian or not Indian. And then it categorizes prospective parents based on whether they are Indian. The Biden administration, like past administrations of both political parties, is defending the law. Citing a string of precedents dating back to the early days of the Republic, the government says that ICWA draws classifications based not on race, but on connections to tribal groups. And under the Constitution, those tribal groups are separate sovereign nations, essentially a political group. Lawyer Ian Gershengorn represents the tribes. From the very first moments of our constitutional history, Congress has legislated for Indians. And so the idea that somehow doing so violates the Equal Protection Clause or is an impermissible racial classification just seems to me impossible to square with the text. The Brackeen's lawyer counters with a different argument. The real injustice of ICWA is that it deprives children of an individualized assessment of their own best interests. And it replaces that individualized best interests of the child test with this hierarchy of preference. 
ICWA does not prevent individualized assessment of children and where they should be. Catherine Fort is director of the Indian Law Clinic at Michigan State University. Our state courts do that every day. I personally don't know a state court judge who would be comfortable being told that they weren't allowed to do an individualized assessment. But for an Indian child, she says, that individualized assessment includes consideration of the child's relationship with her relatives, her language, her religion, and her tribal tradition. The child isn't separate from her tribe. That child is sacred to that tribe. Ian Gershengorn adds this. I think one of the oddest parts of the other side's argument is that they fault Congress for singling out tribes for special treatment when the Constitution itself singles out tribes for special treatment. The Constitution does indeed give Congress nearly complete power to legislate on matters involving trade and relations with Indian tribes. That constitutional provision is called the Indian Commerce Clause. But the Brackeens counter that their case is about a child identified as YRJ. YRJ is not you know, the property of the Indian tribe lawyer Matthew McGill. He is a citizen of the United States and also a citizen of the state of Texas. And there is no reason why this child should not have all of the same rights as every other child born in the state of Texas. The tribes acknowledge that this child was removed from her biological mother's home because of the mother's drug addiction. But they add that this doesn't mean that the tribes have no interest in her subsequent adoption. There's no way to know how many thousands of Native children are removed from a biological parent's home or how many are involved in subsequent adoptions. But Professor Fort says most of these cases are not contentious, noting that nationwide, from 2015 to 2021, there were appeals in only 254 cases. That's no comfort to those involved in months or years of adoption disputes, nor is it any comfort to the more than 500 Indian tribes who see this case as a foot in the door that could lead to other cases challenging Indian preferences involving land, water, fishing rights, and even gaming rights. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the founder of the Oath Keepers has testified about his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. He and four others are charged with seditious conspiracy. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is Election Day. People across the U.S. are heading to the polls, though millions took part in early voting. 
Democrats are hoping to keep control of Congress in the midterm elections. Republicans are seeking to flip the House and possibly the Senate with their focus on the economy and crime. Several Senate races are considered key to the congressional midterm elections. They include ones in Arizona, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Sam Gringlass with member station WABE in Atlanta says the counting of early and absentee votes is already underway in Georgia. Some of Metro Atlanta's vote-rich counties are expected to start releasing returns earlier than in the past. But getting to a final count could still take a while. A big reason is because races have been really tight here recently, and there's still a period after Election Day to count overseas and military ballots, plus sort provisional ballots and absentee ballots that had errors. NPR's Laura Benshoff takes a look at some of the races for governor. There are eight open seats for governor. Two of those races in Arizona and Oregon are neck and neck. But some of the toughest competitions are in states where Democrats currently hold the office. However, in Oklahoma and Georgia, it's Republicans fending off challengers. The National Hurricane Center says Nicole will likely gain hurricane strength before it approaches the east coast of Florida tomorrow night. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Polls are open across Massachusetts on this election day. They'll be open until 8 p.m. WBUR's Dan Mozzie is in Cambridge, where voters are starting to cast their ballots. Here at the polling location at Cambridge City Hall, it's a little more active than it was on primary day morning, um, though still there's no uh, line to, to get your ballot. People are also coming by and using the ballot drop box. Um, here in Cambridge, in addition to the four statewide ballot questions, we also have two non-binding questions related to universal health care and uh, state legislative voting transparency. One of the biggest statewide races is the one for governor. Republican Jeff Deal spent his final day on the campaign trail pitching himself to voters. WBUR's Walter Wuffman reports. Deal has been an underdog throughout the race, but remains undeterred. He spent the morning talking to MBTA commuters in downtown Boston in the evening at the Erie Pub in Dorchester. Deal says he thinks voters blame Democrats for inflation and high energy prices and will support a Republican for governor. I think people are really taking a hard look and saying, you know, do we can we afford to have uh, an all Democrat legislature and Democrat governor that's basically going to be a rubber stamp to, you know, the taxes to spend policies that uh, Democrats tend to represent. Healy argues Deal, who was endorsed by former President Trump, is too extreme for Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Stick with WBUR and WBUR.org all day, today and tomorrow for election coverage. We'll be live with local and national results tonight at 8, along with NPR. Two offshore wind companies are being pressured by the state to say whether or not they'll follow through on their contracts. Mayflower Wind says it is intending to move forward. But Commonwealth Wind hasn't responded yet. Last month, that company asked the state to pause its review of the contracts between the two companies. Commonwealth Wind says global economic conditions mean the agreement is no longer viable. More middle, middle and high school kids are showing signs of e-cigarette nicotine addiction. That's according to researchers at Mass General who studied data from the National Youth Tobacco Survey. They say in 2017, about 1% of adolescents who used e-cigarettes did so within five minutes of waking up. By 2021, it was over 10%. This is Dr. Jonathan Winnikoff. 
there's no product on the market that can addict kids more quickly than e-cigarettes because it's so easy for them to inhale a flavored product um, and they come uh, become addicted extremely quickly. Nationwide, one in four adolescents say they use e-cigarettes daily. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live. Cellist, composer, and one-woman orchestra, Zoe Keating, live at the Berkeley Performance Center, November 11th only. Tickets at globalartslive.org. The Celtics have now won three in a row. They beat the Grizzlies 109-106 to in Memphis. The Seas will be home tomorrow to play the Detroit Pistons. The Bruins topped the St. Louis Blues 3-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees are off until Thursday. That's when they'll host the Calgary Flames. In your forecast, sunny and low 50s today with some gusty winds. Clear and around freezing tonight. Tomorrow, sunny again and low 50s. It warms up a bit on Thursday. It'll be sunny and in the low 60s. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The seditious conspiracy trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes now includes his own version of events. Rhodes testified in his own defense yesterday. He denied planning the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which is exactly what he's accused of doing, plotting to block Joe Biden from taking office as president. NPR justice correspondent Ryan Lucas was in the courtroom. Ryan, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What did Rhodes say? Well, Rhodes was on the stand all day yesterday. He was dressed in a dark suit and tie. He had his trademark uh, black eye patch on. And he told the jury that the Oath Keepers had no plan to storm the Capitol on January 6th. He said the people who did breach the Capitol that day did something stupid. Uh, Important to note here that three of his co-defendants did enter the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, But Rhodes said it was stupid to go into the building in part because it would give the Oath Keepers uh, political enemies a reason to come after them. And he pointed to this trial, now in its sixth week, uh, as case in point. Uh, So he's clearly trying to distance himself from those who did enter the Capitol on January 6th. But he was also trying to distance himself from other key aspects uh, of the government's case. What do you mean by that? Well, the the government showed evidence that the Oath Keepers had stashed firearms at a Virginia hotel uh, and had what they called a quick reaction force that was on call, ready to rush those weapons into D.C. on January 6th if they were needed. Uh, And Rhodes testified that he didn't control or have anything to do with that. He said he delegated authority and oversight of the operation on January 6th to others. Uh, He also denied telling Oath Keepers to delete self-incriminating messages uh, from their cell phones after the Capitol attack on January 6th. He said that that instruction to delete those messages was something that his lawyer, uh, who was also his girlfriend, added on her own. It was not something that came from him. But Brian, what you're saying there points at some of the evidence that the government has laid out. How did prosecutors cross-examine him? Well, this this 
cross-examination was a was a big moment in this trial. Uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Ricosi did the cross-examination. She spent about three hours or so uh, trying to poke holes in Rhodes' testimony and then highlight those holes for the jury. So Rhodes, for example, said that Oath Keepers provided security at events and protests in the past. Uh, setting Oath Keepers never had an issue with the law before. Oath Keepers uh, had never pointed a gun at anyone. Ricosi, though, brought up uh, an old story that an Oath Keeper had pointed a gun before at a protest, and it was at a black man who was filming the group. Uh, Rhodes also said he wasn't really in command on January 6th, as I noted. Uh, he said pointedly that the buck didn't really stop with him. Uh, Ricosi then showed a text message from before January 6th, just days before, when Rhodes wrote in his own words that he was, quote, in overall command. Mm. So there was a lot of that. The government using Rhodes' own words against him, showing the jury inflammatory text messages and audio recordings of Rhodes talking about fighting and coming with rifles in hand uh, and taking action if Trump didn't take action. Does Rhodes' testimony bring this trial near the end? Well, that's a good question. We are certainly moving closer. Uh, Rhodes' attorneys say they have a few more witnesses they expect to call. Uh, so they are planning on about another day and a half or so for their defense. The other four defendants are also expected uh, to put on a defense. And the government has said it may want to put on a rebuttal case. So we still have a bit of a ways to go before this all ra- wraps up uh, and goes to the jury. NPR's Ryan Lucas, thanks as always. Thanks, Steve. In Wisconsin, many voters are having to change the way they vote this election because of changes that the state has made to the voting process since 2020. One of them was banning ballot drop boxes. A grassroots organization in Milwaukee is working to ensure that voters, especially black voters, continue to make their voices heard despite the new rules. Here's NPR's H.J. Mai. A group of about half a dozen young black men and women wearing bright yellow safety vests are out canvassing in the St. Joseph's neighborhood on Milwaukee's north side. They're knocking on doors and leaving leaflets, urging people to vote in this predominantly black neighborhood. A lot of people mention like jobs a lot, like they wish more jobs was in our community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, crime, they wish crime was down. Mm-hmm. Um, schools, they want better education than the schools. They just wish more like money was put in our community than it is now. Donia Robinson is a 24-year-old field ambassador for the nonprofit Block, which stands for Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. For him, authentic engagement is key to turnout. Before I joined uh, this organization, I didn't know a thing about politics. I didn't know our entire, you know, living condition was based mm-hmm. on politics. Mm-hmm. I started actually doing the work myself and seeing it. This is what matters. Robinson has been canvassing neighborhoods like this one for weeks. The group was founded in 2017 in direct response to the election of former President Donald Trump. With tight races expected at this election, Democrats sent former President Barack Obama to Milwaukee late last month to drum up support. Look, whatever the reasons, when gas prices go up, when grocery prices go up, that takes a bite out of people's paychecks. That hurts. But the question you should be asking is, who's actually going to do something about it? The Republicans are having a field day running ads, talking about it. But what is their actual solution to it? While inflation is a top issue for many voters, Democrats in Wisconsin want to point to other things at stake, like a Republican supermajority in the state legislature. Block's co-founder and executive director, Angela Lang, says in this election, voters need to pay attention to the candidates up and down the entire ballot. 
People understand that that really impacts day to day, um, sometimes more than um, a governor or a president or a U.S. senator. You feel that impact right away. Republicans are trying to flip a handful of seats to gain two-thirds majorities in the state Senate and state assembly. If that happens, the GOP will have the votes needed to override vetoes by the governor. Current Democratic Governor Tony Evers is in a tight contest with Republican Tim Michaels. Lang says Evers serves as the last line of defense against extreme Republican policies. Wisconsin has this archaic abortion ban on the books. If we're able to flip it away from a conservative majority, are we able to have another shot of getting that removed? Are we able to have another shot at things like fair maps? To be able to switch the ideology um, and get rid of and maybe undo some of these harmful decisions is important. This year, the Wisconsin Supreme Court chose a legislative redistricting plan drawn up by GOP state lawmakers. This decision gave the party's candidates for the legislature an even bigger advantage over the next decade. Despite that, Democrats are still hoping for a large turnout among Milwaukee's black voters. And Lang thinks, with Senate candidate Mandela Barnes, the party has the right men to get voters excited. We understand that not every black person is for us, but Mandela has been in the community. To have someone that is so down to earth, that is a product of Milwaukee, um, running for this like really high office, I think means a lot to people. Barnes is in a close contest with Republican incumbent Ron Johnson. Should he defeat Johnson, Barnes would become the state's first black U.S. senator. No matter Tuesday's outcome, Lang says Block's work to engage black voters will continue. HJMI, NPR News, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, the new season of The Crown may be its most controversial with its close look at the relationship between Charles and Diana. Critic Eric Deggins shares his thoughts. In your forecast, sunny today but cold relative to the last few days. It'll only be in the low 50s and it'll be windy. Clear and low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and low 50s again. Sunny and low 60s on Thursday. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. You can plan your visit at icaboston.org. Now, in business news, Cambridge-based Repertoire Immune Medicines is laying off 65 workers. That's nearly half its staff. The move comes as the biotech scraps two of its lead drugs. Recent Phase one trials showed the treatments were not effective. The Christmas Place in Abington will permanently close its doors at the end of this holiday season. The store's owners say they're ready to retire. They also own the attached Pool Place store, which will also close at the end of this year. It's 8.45. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm going to admit, this is exciting news for me. The new season of Netflix's hit drama about the British monarchy, The Crown, debuts tomorrow. Just two months, though, after the death of Queen Elizabeth. Some critics say the timing of the latest season is distasteful and disrespectful. This set of episodes recreates a time in the 1990s when Princess Diana was estranged from then-Prince Charles. And she was speaking publicly about being mistreated by the royal family. Imelda Staunton plays the queen. And in this scene, she's trying to assure Diana, played by Elizabeth Debicki, that the royal family doesn't hate her. The hostility you imagine we all feel is a figment of your imagination. Is it? All any of us want, Diana, is for you to be happy and one day to be our next queen. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is with us to talk this morning about all things Crown. Hey, Eric. Hey, it's so hard not to talk in an English accent when you hear <laughs> those great quotes and those great scenes. That's that's your cross to bear. So um, <laughs> I, I admit I'm a fan, but there's been a lot of criticism of this season, right? I mean, I'm just going to tick off a few. Right. Actress Dame Judi Dench, very revered in the UK, has accused the show of crude sensationalism. Former Prime Minister John Major says there are issues with how the show is recreating some events. The British media is piling on. What do you make of all this hubbub? Well, I think they're making a point that affects not only the crown, but other dramas that are based on real life events, like, say, Netflix's recent series about serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, viewers assume that producers have researched these stories and are presenting them with some accuracy, but the crown in particular recreates a lot of situations where there weren't many witnesses. Conversations between Queen Elizabeth and then Prince Charles, or mm -hmm. between Charles and then Prime Minister John Major, where Charles kind of hinted that the queen uh, maybe was out of touch and should be sidelined to make room for him to be king before she died. Um, you know, viewers aren't really told how the producers have decided how to script these scenes or what their knowledge is based on, and they're depicting events that many viewers may remember or have lived through, which right. makes it even more sensitive. I do think that even with disclaimers, viewers are going to assume that what they're seeing is close to the truth, whether or not it actually is. So how does the new season frame the more controversial moments from the royal family's history? Well, you know, this is a really controversial time. I mean, they're depicting when Charles and Diana's marriage was falling apart in public, while Charles was barely hiding that he'd taken up with longtime love Camilla Parker Bowles. And Dominic West, he's an alum of HBO's The Wire. He excels at playing these charismatic and compelling men who are also deeply flawed. He plays Charles, does a great job. Elizabeth Debicki channels Diana's glamour and beauty, but she also channels her vulnerability and her capacity for self-pity. You know, I spent a little time in London uh, recently, and I think this season reflects how a lot of people over there see the royal family with complexity, compassion, and occasionally some exasperation. Some have criticized the show as one long advertisement for the British monarchy, right? Is there evidence of that in the fifth season? You know, I've said this in the past about other shows. I think there's a difference between lionizing characters and humanizing them. And I think what The Crown does so well is humanize the queen and the royal family in a way that might help explain their history and their importance. The show this season is constantly interrogating the question of whether a monarchy is relevant for a modern democracy. And everybody in the royal family, including the queen, is obsessed about whether the public's going to decide to eliminate the monarchy. I think this season asks some really fascinating questions and tells some compelling stories. You just to remind yourself that it's a historical drama where the real life details may have been tweaked or exaggerated to serve the story. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you, Eric. You're welcome. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
The Marketplace Morning Report is coming up on WBUR. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now. And Robin Young is here in studio to fill us in about what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Let me guess. Let me guess. What? Something about an election. Oh, you are so brilliant. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, we're going to take a look uh, nationwide, as you've been concentrating here in Massachusetts with some exciting uh, elections here. But across the country, as you know, you know, it's just uh, it is such an important day. Mm. And we're going to take a look at some of the races that you might want to be looking at. You know, they say Virginia's second and seventh and uh, in North Carolina, the 13th. And in Pennsylvania, there's a race that if you watch these, these are bellwether races. So we'll let you know which they are. We'll be dropping down across the country and just see how things are going. I mean, what happens in Arizona, as a judge there has said that those ballot box watchers, you know, with guns and masks have to stay a certain amount away from Mm -hmm. the ballot boxes. Why in Pennsylvania are there thousands of uh, mail-in ballots that are being questioned right now? So we'll just uh, take a look at the landscape. But also, we're going to have a conversation. If you are someone who has a a young woman in your family, or maybe you are someone of around, you know, 30 years old, I'd say at this point, there is a good chance you have Janet McCurdy's new book. She is one of the stars of iCarly. She is also a best-selling author now for her incredible memoir. It's called I'm Glad My Mom Died. And that sounds very harsh. It does. But it's about her monstrous stage mom. And we'll hear our conversation with her at noon. So interesting. Thank you, Robin. Mm -hmm. That's here now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. Give the gift of a Thanksgiving meal. Donate at gbfb.org slash wbur. Election Day is finally here, and on All Things Considered, we will bring you the latest. We'll hear from voters around the country about their top issues. Our reporters will cover races in battleground states. And we'll stay on top of Election Day news with analysis from our correspondents. Don't miss our midterms coverage this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Low-income countries face huge costs as the climate changes. Who will help them pay? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Developing countries will need a trillion dollars a year in foreign financing to help them deal with climate change and reduce emissions. That's according to a new report released by the United Nations. And where will the money come from? The U.S. apparently is looking to the private sector for help. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more on that. Yeah, David, we're likely to get more details about this idea tomorrow at the United Nations COP27 climate conference taking place in Egypt. And that idea from the White House is to allow companies to buy up carbon credits from developing countries. And those countries would earn those credits for cutting back on their use of fossil fuels and building up renewable energy projects. Now, the Biden administration is reportedly shopping this idea around to private companies, and this would especially be a way of moving developing countries away from coal use, David, something the White House has emphasized as a priority. Which kinds of companies would be asked to chip in? 
So the Biden administration reportedly has been talking to companies in banking, consumer goods, shipping and aviation, and notably not in the oil and gas sector, even though those companies use carbon credits a lot. Uh, at the end of the day, though, there would have to be a great deal of participation in this idea, David, because developing countries need huge amounts of financing. We learned that from the UN Today, as you mentioned, they put out a report saying developing countries will need a trillion dollars in outside funding and, by the way, another trillion dollars in internal financing. And all of this has to happen by the end of the decade. And right now, wealthy nations haven't even reached their pledge of just $100 billion a year for poorer nations. So there's a long way to go. And financing is expected to be the key focus tomorrow, David, at the climate conference. Marketplace's Nova Safa, thank you. More now from that big UN climate conference in Egypt. There are differences among countries emerging about the role of natural gas in curbing climate change. Several African countries want to export more gas at a time when Europe is struggling to find supplies. Gas is a carbon light fossil fuel. For a given amount of heat, gas puts out about 30 percent less climate altering carbon dioxide, yet it puts out a lot of carbon dioxide. The BBC's Matt McGraw reports from that conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. Demand for natural gas has soared in the wake of the Ukraine war. Europe has, in the main, turned to imports of liquefied gas from the US and the Middle East. But several African countries believe Europe's difficulty is their opportunity. They have put forward plans to exploit their reserves, aiming to live millions out of poverty. However, critics say turning to gas is short-sighted. While it's less polluting than coal, the International Energy Agency says new gas fields aren't compatible with global aims to achieve net zero emissions by the middle of this century. Matt McGraw is with our editorial partner, the BBC, reporting from Egypt there. In the U.S., it is Election Day. You can get over there. There's still time. Meanwhile, market players are waiting and seeing with results possibly could take a while. S&P and Dow futures are up four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures now up six-tenths of a percent. The 10-year interest rate down slightly, 4.2 percent. A year ago, it was 1.5 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers closer to the destination. Viking offers a small ship experience with veranda staterooms and an included shore excursion in every port. Viking.com. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Hangry, a new memoir by Grubhub founder Mike Evans about the journey of creating a multi-billion dollar startup from scratch. Hangry is available as audio, ebook, and in local bookstores. Tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's known as ICWA. That's a law to keep Native American children connected to their communities by prioritizing their families and tribal members for foster placements and adoptions. From the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, Marketplace's Savannah Marr has more on what's at stake. At a wrestling tournament in Fort Washakie, Wyoming, Clarice and Pat Harris cheer on their 13-year-old. He puts up a good fight, but... He got pinned. Um, he did good though, right? He gets a big hug from his dad. I almost had him. <laughs> Clarice and Pat are in their 70s. 
They've been foster parents for 40 years. They've taken in dozens of Native kids, including the seven they're raising right now. Clarice wants her kids to feel grounded in their northern Arapaho tribal community because when she and her siblings were growing up in foster care... We knew we were Indians. We knew we were Indians. But, you know, we didn't know we were members of a tribe. In their white foster homes, their Paiute identity was erased. Elizabeth Hidalgo Reese, a professor at Stanford Law, says ICWA aims to prevent that. To make sure that Native people have ties to their identities. But challenges to ICWA say the law, which applies to kids and families based on their Indian status, unfairly discriminates based on race. And if the court agrees, then lots of other Indian classifications throughout the rest of federal law are also potentially impermissible racial classifications. Including in laws that provide services like health care to tribal citizens and those that help tribal governments develop their economies, run businesses and bring in revenue. Scholars of Indian law, like Reese, say citizenship in a tribe is not a racial classification, but a political one. It matters a tremendous amount that tribes are seen as nations and not as races. If the high court overturns that precedent, Reese says tribal sovereignty itself is at risk. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. And the Asia-based company that builds a lot of Apple products is making a big investment in an electric truck factory in Ohio. Lordstown Motors occupies the former GM plant there, and Foxconn of Taipei is putting in $170 million to jointly develop electric vehicles. Lordstown's stock is up, look at this, 17% in pre-market trading. Our producers are Meredith Gerritsen-Morby, Ariana Rosas, Stephen Ryan, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jarrett Dang. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Brace yourself for temperatures in the low 50s today. It'll be sunny and windy. Tonight it falls to around freezing. Good weather to stay inside and listen to election results on WBUR. Live coverage and analysis starts at 8, or you can always visit WBUR.org. Tomorrow, low 50s and sunny again. On Thursday, temperatures will rise to the low 60s and it'll be sunny. It's 48 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. After a year of catastrophic weather events, rich and poor nations have gathered in Egypt for the COP27 climate conference. The picture is grim, but some climate scientists say they're encouraged by how much progress the world has made, balancing hope and alarm in a warming world. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.